Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Corpus coming in, goal! Oh, what a goal! Oh, what the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello everybody, Sam Edmund here. With thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives, we're looking back on the best of your sporting life for 2020. Well, this year marked 15 years since that magical night the Socceroos qualified for the World Cup against Uruguay in Sydney. And we caught up with two men central to that night's drama, John Aloisi and Craig Foster. Let's start with John Aloisi, the man who scored the decisive penalty to send Australia to Germany in 2006. The striker was an integral member of the national team for more than a decade, earning 55 caps, 27 goals and worldwide recognition. Yet it was in green and gold that he converted the most pivotal penalty in the history of the sport in this country and indeed one of Australia's greatest sporting moments. John, hello and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Please tell me you've never had to buy a beer again after that magical night against Uruguay in 2005. <laughs> Oh, I've had to buy plenty of beers, but uh, look, it's something that's always brought up uh, amongst people that obviously were around during that era. The younger generation probably don't remember until someone shows them on a YouTube clip or something like that. But, uh, you know, it was a, a special night and I was just fortunate to be part of such a, an occasion. You know, 32 years in the waiting to get back to a World Cup and, and the way it all ended up uh, you know, in a penalty shootout was uh, was amazing. We'll come back to that magical night later because to go forward, you have to go back, of course. You were born in Adelaide in 1976, one of five children to Rocky and Helen Aloisi. Where do you sit in the order there, John? I'm third. I've got uh, an older sister that's five years older and my brother, Ross, who also played and uh, also coaching, uh, three years older than me. Uh, and then I've got two younger sisters that uh, five and ten years younger. So we're quite spread out. My home was in suburban Hectorville there, outside Adelaide. Was it a hectic household with five kids running around, John? And you mentioned your brother Ross there. I imagine there was damage done to everything over the journey with various balls <laughs> in the backyard. Well, there was damage. I can't believe how many windows we would have broken or we did break at, at home in the backyard. Um, it wasn't only just playing uh, soccer. It was, you know, we, we were into our cricket in the summer, uh, especially, and then uh, we would just play all sports. And uh, we had a, a pool table. We played snooker, and um, 
And so a few uh, cue sticks got thrown around, uh, table tennis, bat flying around. Um, my mum used to say that we're going to kill each other one day, but uh, it was all part of that. We just wanted to win. We just hated losing. Um, and uh, But the, the, the household in itself, I felt sorry for the girls because, you know, the boys overtook, even though there were three of them, um, we were just a, a lot more rowdy than them. Just on that competitiveness, I think Ross once said that it didn't matter what it was you were playing, that your dad, your old man Rocky, would just never allow you to win. He wouldn't let you win ever. No, not in anything. It was uh, we, we used to play uh, quite a bit of sport with him as well. Not that he was great at soccer, but uh, he could uh, hold his own a little bit when we were younger. But uh, mainly it was, you know, cricket and uh, with uh, snooker, you know, he would never let us win. And and cricket, he was a fast bowler. He was a mean fast bowler. So I didn't really like facing him at all. (laughs) He migrated to Australia from Calabria. Nine years of age, I think he was, 1956, after your grandfather had earlier made the trip down under. He was a a cabinet maker by trade, I think. Um, What... Did he and your mum instill in you and your siblings growing up your values? It's uh, you've done your research. Uh, yeah, he was nine, um, and uh, he was also you know one of five uh, kids. They had uh, he had three other brothers and and a sister. But uh, the, the main thing that they did instill was just hard work and and respect. Uh, I think they were the two main things. And uh, you know, my dad. Uh, you know, he uh, a cabinet maker by trade and ended up uh, owning uh, his business with uh, my uncle. And, uh, you know, so we used to hear him get up at uh, five in the morning to go off to work. And then, you know, especially when we were younger, we didn't see him come through the door sometimes until after he was, uh, he had his soccer training because he was coaching about 8.30 at night. And so it was uh, one of those things that uh, I knew that he worked hard. He never gave up. Uh, in anything that he did, and uh, and my mum was always there to, you know, make sure that we were uh, we were well looked after at home, but also they were respectful in the way that we uh, conducted ourselves. It's amazing to think that all these years on, you mentioned Ross that you would play against each other, coach together. Uh, what kept you coming back to football? You mentioned all the other sports you play, but what was it that? He had the blinkers on in the end for the for the round ball. I think it was just that was probably the game that we were most passionate about. Um, you know, Ross was probably better uh, at cricket than what I was, but uh, you know, cricket still can be pretty individual when you when you think about it. You know, you're out there in the middle by yourself, or if you're bowling, it's you know you're the one that's uh, that's you know front and centre. Uh, in the field, you haven't really got unless you're in the slip, you haven't got anyone to chat to. Whereas with uh, with soccer, it was more a team environment and that's probably uh, something that we really enjoyed and, uh, and, and you know we're passionate about it as kids you know we used to watch uh, World Cups together and uh, you know go watch Adelaide City uh, on the weekend which is a team that we followed in the old NSL and, um, and it's something that we dreamt about playing you know when we got older playing for, for Adelaide City in, in the National League. Well, I don't think you were that old. In fact, you were very young. When did you, a young John Aloisi play his first game? You kicked the ball in anger for the first time. I was only five years old. It was uh, it was funny because I, since I remember, I was kicking the ball around, so I must have started kicking the ball around when I was about two or three years old. But um, uh, a year before that, I was four years old, and my brother's team was short of a player, and they wanted to... You know, me to fill in, and I said no, and I just didn't feel like you know playing. This there was a story from my parents, and then a year later I said I want to play, and so they found a club for me, and um, 
it was one of the only clubs that would accept a, a five-year-old. And then, you know, from there, I just uh, kept on playing. Fantastic. And you mentioned Adelaide City in the NSL. You were 15 when you made your debut for them. Oh, you were a young man in a hurry, John. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible time because I was only in year 11 at school. And, um, and you know, to, to actually play with senior players, and I was training a lot with the senior players for about a year before I made my debut. But... Um, you know, it was uh, it was something that uh, they made sure that you didn't get carried away with yourself, and that uh, you know you had to hold your own, especially um, you know in, in training with older professionals because they would kick you no matter what, and uh, and make sure that you knew where you were, and and but that uh, made me a lot stronger as a as a player and as a as a person. So. At 15, I know it was young, but I felt ready at that time to, to be, you know, playing with uh, those players. And wasn't there an early John Crossroad moment? I might have even been on Debu. There was a physical altercation between you and another player? Yeah, there was. We are playing Melbourne Croatia. Now they're, they're called Melbourne Knights. And uh, and there was uh, a player. I, I just made, uh, I came on and within five minutes, uh, I felt someone kick me and I, I went to the floor and... Uh, and then as I was about to get up, he pushed my face down and uh, and all I was was on the floor. Then all of a sudden, I feel there were these people around me. I didn't realise what had happened until after the game. One of the supporters jumped the fence and went to go punch the uh, the player, that, um, the one that I had an altercation with. And the next day was front page of the paper. So it wasn't about me making my debut as a 15-year-old. It was more about it was a bit of fan violence. No, nothing was going to stop you. You're on the fast track to the top, no doubt about that. There was then a stint at the Australian Institute of Sport, I think, and then a huge opportunity presented itself. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And up next, John Aloisi on that life-changing decision he made as a youngster to leave his family and friends behind to chase a professional career overseas. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with Aussie football legend John Aloisi. Well, John, at only 16, you travel to Belgium for a trial with Standard Liège, and you think about all the things that you don't know at that age, and here you are, leaving family behind to go to the other side of the world. I mean, the obvious question is, how difficult was this time in your life? Oh, that was definitely the most difficult time I had in my my life and my my footballing career because uh, you know you get over there and um, you know you are a foreigner um, you know the players you're you're taking a local spot and um, and they don't really make life easy for you and and plus I went to uh, Liège which was a French-speaking part of Belgium so you know, I couldn't really speak any other language other than English, and um, and then all of a sudden, you know, no one speaks English, and I have to learn French, and uh, it was freezing over there. I think when I arrived was uh, around January, so it was about uh, minus five, minus six degrees. So that was a a rude awakening. And then, you know, being from an Italian background, I was pretty spoilt when I was younger. Uh, you know, in terms of the people, well, my mum mainly looking after me and, and cooking for me and doing everything for me to, you know, doing that all by myself. And uh, it, it was hard going. And 
And back then there was no, you know, Skyping or Zooming or, or uh, FaceTime. It was, you mm. know, call your family whenever you can from a, a public phone and um, and just, you know, make the most of uh, the opportunity. Yeah, public phone boxes. Remember those? And, and snail mail as well. <laughs> but what... What were the arrangements, though, John? So no one at all came over from Australia. Were you living with anyone at the time, or did that was there a chaperone with you, or were you pretty much left to your own devices? I was uh, the, the first six months. I was there um, where the, the the team used to train. So I was living by myself, and then uh, after a month, another player moved in with me. But uh, lucky enough that I was able to uh, have dinner most days at uh, the, the restaurant at the club there. So that that was good, but um, everything else in terms of washing and uh, and you know living and doing all that stuff by yourself, you know, I had to do. So it was uh, it was an eye opener and uh, it was hard going, and I I did feel homesick. I'd say for the first two years of being away, but um, just the dream of playing professional football and playing at the highest level in Europe was uh, enough to keep me over there. Oh, amazing. You must have had so many moments where you just thought about uh, getting on the next plane out of there and you stuck at it though and it was at your next club, Antwerp, I think, the two-year stint there where your career really started to blossom, wasn't it? Yeah, that's uh, at Liège. I was mainly playing reserve team football and uh, so after six months I moved to Royal Antwerp, which that, that's when I did live uh, by myself and, you know, it wasn't at the, the training ground and but um, the good thing there is that I made my debut at, at 17 there and um, quite fortunate that I was able to score on my debut and, and then yeah. start to get game time slowly. So it, was, uh, you know, it wasn't like I was a starting 11 player straight away. You, know, you, you play uh, a few minutes here, a few minutes there, and then you know, slowly you work your way into the team. But that was, that was great for, for my, uh, the start of my career because, you know, I was getting that experience of playing football. And Cremonese was next in Serie A at the time, of course. Now, this was a big move to a win-at-all-costs league. I mean, was it a huge step up in terms of professionalism and the like? Yeah, it was a huge step and probably uh, too early for me. I, I still hadn't had enough experience at uh, probably a lower league like Belgium um, because Serie A at the time was the, the best league in, in Europe, if not the world. And you had only three foreigners in your side, so I was one of the the three at Cremonese, and and we were a team battling uh, relegation. So when I arrived, we were in the I think we we're bottom uh, because I arrived halfway through the season, and that was when I I did really feel it started well for me. I scored again pretty early uh, in my my Cremonese uh, career, and then. After that, we were struggling to get results. And who do they go to first? They go to the, the foreigners and, and also being a striker. And um, that was the first time I really felt pressure. And, and I didn't deal with it well. I, I struggled to deal with it. And uh, that was a hard time in, in my career as well. Yeah, and it, w- it was preparation and presentation to an obsessive level, wasn't it? Didn't you get scolded once because your socks were a bit shorter than the rest of your yeah. teammates? <laughs> Yeah, I did. Well, preparation in Italy is, is it was everything. You know, it was from uh, the food you ate and the, you know everything uh, around that. But it was also to, to what you wore to, to games and what you wore to training. They used to make sure you blow dried your hair before you left the the changing room because uh, or else you might catch a cold outside if it was too cold or too windy. Um, but I did uh, before one of the games. Um, I wore our normal socks that we normally wear, but over in in Italy they all wear the, the socks that go up to your knees, and um, the, the 
spoke to you in front of the whole group he embarrassed me and said you know <laughs> you're not in Australia now you're in Italy you have to dress the in the right way and uh, you know you have to start to grow up you played in the English first division with Portsmouth and then the top flight there with Coventry City before moving to Spain and it was there where you spent the most time at the one club 121 appearances for Osasuna in the Liga did you feel like you also played some of your best football of your career there yeah I, I definitely played my best football in Spain I think that that time there I I really felt comfortable uh, in terms of uh, my experience uh, on the pitch I knew how to deal with the pressure a lot better I knew how to deal with uh, certain situations because again you know you have your ups and downs uh, whether it's through injury which I had a lot of injuries while I was in England at Coventry um, but um, you know I was able to probably play my best football at Osasuna and then Alaves and uh and that's where I, I probably enjoyed my football the most as well. In 2004, there's a scoreline that stands out. You play in a 3-0 win over Real Madrid at, at none other than the Bernabeu. Now, the Galacticos didn't lose too often. They certainly didn't lose like that too often. Now, which celebrated names are on the wrong end of the scoreline that day? Oh, there's a few of them. There was uh, Roberto Carlos, uh, uh, famous uh, left-back uh, for Brazil and for Real Madrid. There was Casillas in goals, probably the, the all-time uh, leading mm. um, in terms of caps for Spain, but, but now Sergio Ramos has probably overtaken him. And then you had a World Cup winner. You had, uh, you had Beckham in the side. You had uh, Zidane, uh, Figo. Role. They they just had stars everywhere, and it was that period there where they they signed all those big stars, and they were called the Galacticos, and you know were their little Osasuna, which is a, a team north of Spain that um, just at five years before were in second division, and uh, hadn't won at the Bernabeu, I don't think, for something like thirty odd years. So it was a massive result for us, and uh, especially to to beat them. Just getting back to Osasuna the next year, so 2005, you actually netted in the Copa del Rey final. I think it was your last game for the club, it turned out. You equalised in what was an eventual 1-2 extra time loss to Real Betis. It was the first time the club had made a final as well. I mean, how special must that have been to score in it? Yeah, special moment, um, not only for myself, but for the club in general, because it is, I think their 100-year anniversary this year and the only final they've ever made uh, was that year there in 2005 and so I, I went back to Spain last year and visited uh, Pamplona where Osasuna is and um, still people were stopping me on the street to talk about that uh, final So and that right. goal so it, it is a special moment and, and the atmosphere that day was something that uh, will always live with me it was, uh, it was so um, it was it played at Atletico Madrid Stadium uh, their old stadium and there was 55,000 people and half the crowd were Real Betis fans and half were Osasuna fans and they all wore their red and um, and I scored down the end where the Osasuna fans were and just it was uh, it was incredible the the atmosphere and the way that uh, they were uh, celebrating that goal. Fantastic and just you mentioned you went back to Pamplona. I mean, you would go on to play at, I think, 12 different clubs across the entirety of your career, four countries, 459 club goals, or appearances, rather, 127 goals. Which one do you most associate yourself with, looking back? Osasuna is uh, the club that I... Uh, it's not that I just associate myself with. It is where I enjoyed my football the most, but I felt part of the family, um, and that, that was a real family club. A lot of... Uh, players that played in that team were from Pamplona and then they, they came through the, the academy there and 
and uh, and they were close friends of mine, and, and and still are. So when I go back, I you know catch up with a lot of them, and uh, and you really felt that that uh, you're part of that football club. You're a cultured man too, given your travels, of course. I know you speak Spanish, Italian as well, I would assume, and you mentioned French earlier. So how many languages you got under the belt there? Yeah, none good. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> I, no, Spanish is probably the the one after English, obviously that uh, I I feel more comfortable with. The Italian I started to lose once I went to to Spain. I, you know, I understand that, but uh, mm. I'm not so comfortable in speaking it. And, and French, I don't think I remember too much about French. That was that long ago. I, I sort of lost that language. But uh, no, I, I was glad to to be able to learn a language like Spanish because you know it's so spoken throughout the world and especially South America and Central America, which, uh, you know, I love visiting when I can. And you obviously came back to finish your career where it all started in Australia, of course, with the A-League that had, that had well and truly come on board by the time you returned. You had stints at Central Coast, Sydney FC, where you won the title, and Melbourne Heart. Was it a nice way to finish off? You obviously want to contribute right up until the end, but sometimes, um, you know, uh, I guess with the age that we all get to, we slow down eventually. Were you happy with the way it finished off? Um, looking back, I, I probably uh, could have finished a little bit earlier because um, I had a bad knee injury that, uh, that for the last probably three years of my career, I, I was struggling. I was struggling to, to train through uh, the week and then, you know, get back up for a game on the weekend. And, and you know, your mind... Uh, is telling you what to do in terms of when you're out on the pitch, where you should be, and and you know the runs you should make, but the, the body's not following as quickly as it should. And um, but I, I probably wasn't enjoying my football as much because I wasn't able to uh, play at the level or be at the level that I wanted to be. But um, I still, you know, uh, tried to, to give my all and um, and make sure that I was able to pass on the knowledge to the younger players, which was I thought was important. So. It was, uh, yeah, look, you know, sometimes you look back and you think that um, maybe I went on a little bit too long in terms of with my injuries, but uh, I still enjoyed playing football. That was the, the main thing. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, John Aloisi's memories of a glittering Socceroos career and that history-making penalty against Uruguay. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with former Socceroo John Aloisi. John, you grew up obsessed with the game, playing it and watching it but you'd never seen Australia play in a World Cup. But on November 16, 2005, in Sydney, you helped rewrite history with the decisive spot kick that defeated Uruguay and sent the Socceroos to Germany 2006. The the memories of this night and that playoff series must live on with you so prominently even now. Yeah, it does. Uh, look, the, the World Cup was definitely a highlight of my career. And, and speaking to the... the teammates that uh, went to the World Cup, they would say the same thing. It was uh, an incredible experience and uh, and something that will definitely live with us. But uh, even if you're not thinking about it, uh, you know, people will bring up um, that that night against Uruguay, it was, uh, you know, a lot of people remember it, even if they weren't there. 
uh, which I'm sure I've met uh, 130,000 people that say they were there, but there was only <laughs> 83,000 people. Um, and they just, they just want to know and uh, you know the way I felt and what it was like, but also they want to tell me what they were doing and, and how they felt. And, um, and so it's actually, a, you know, a nice uh, thing to talk about because, you know, everyone has their uh, different memories of it and, uh, you know, we all had special memories. Yeah, it was such a where were you when moment, wasn't it? And it was a really powerful and emotional night. How often? I mean, we're in a different world at the moment with COVID, but when we were free to move around more freely, how often would you get stopped and asked about that night in 2005 against Uruguay? Well, if I meet someone different, uh, it, it, they will definitely ask me. Um, <laughs> it, it, it can be nearly every day, uh, you know, that, that even like someone younger that wasn't even alive, someone might tell them and then they want to find out, you know, what it was like and, and whatever else. But, uh, yeah, it can be it can be pretty often. You know, sometimes I, I hear people scream out uh, Aloisi, the, the way that Simon Hill screamed it out, not that. I don't think it was that uh, penalty. It was more from the yep. World Cup, yep. um, but it was uh, yeah. So I get I get stopped often, but it's something that you know. Uh, again, in sport, I played for twenty odd years, and to be remembered for one moment, um, which a lot of players or you know athletes are remembered for something, it's it's good to be remembered for something positive. That's for sure. Oh, fantastic. And and take us into the night itself, if you can. Obviously, Marco Bresciano scores. It's 1-1 on aggregate, right throughout normal time, right throughout extra time. It comes to the unthinkable. Uh, the tension is just uh, palpable before the penalty shootout. Take us onto the pitch. What what was said before the shootout when the boys gathered together? The only thing that I can remember that was said was... Um was Graham Arnold coming around seeing who was uh, who wanted to take a penalty, so seeing who was confident enough to take a penalty because, as you said, it's a pressure moment. Um, and I said that I was, and uh, he said, OK, I'll put you number one. I said, no, no, put me number five. Um, it, it was just a feeling I had, not only uh, that night, but leading into the game, um, yeah, leading in from four years earlier because I only played a little bit of a part of the the Uruguay game four years early in the qualification. I think I only played five minutes in the two legs. And so it was something that was in my mind that I was going to uh, be there and, and score the goal that will take Australia to the World Cup. I, I've been uh, not only saying it to myself, I've been saying it to my wife and uh, anyone that would uh, would listen to me that I was going to be there to, to score the winning goal and so that's why I asked to go number five because I had that feeling that uh, I was going to be the one that would take the winning penalty. Like a premonition almost. It was. Uh, and it was something that they, I didn't even realise that uh, even I was telling my teammates, I told Mark Baduka uh, probably six months earlier, we were out in London after a game and um, and I, I told him that I was going to score the winning goal. And the, the next night, well, that night there that uh, I did score, he uh, he reminded me, and I, I felt embarrassed that, uh, that I was even telling someone there was our captain that <laughs> was going to score the winning goal. But it was it was something that was so set in my mind, and uh, that it was going to happen, and uh, it eventually did. Absolutely amazing! And the fact that you've been thinking about it for that long—had you actually been thinking about the kick itself for that long, about where you would put it and how you would like to take it? Had you been? rock solid on how you would do that that far out as well? No. I, I Look, I didn't know it was going to go to a penalty shootout and I didn't know that, uh, you know, the way I scored the winning goal was going to be a penalty. I just thought it would be normal time. But um, I had uh, had my 
um, experiences with penalties. I, as a uh, 14-year-old, I was playing in a, a semi-final with Adelaide City in the under-18s, and um, I was uh, I, I got to take the last penalty, and uh, that it was to stay in the the actual penalty shootout, and and I missed, and uh, it was the worst feeling I ever had. I know I remember it clearly because. My teammate, um, one of my teammates, when I walked inside, you know, these are 17-year-old boys crying, and I was the youngest in the in the group, and uh, and one of them uh, punched the wall, thinking it was just uh, a, a sort of a wooden plasticky wall, and uh, but there was solid brick behind, and he broke his wrist, and I remember the scream, and then I I, I felt like absolute crap. So when you you walk up to place the ball on the spot and the stadium holds its breath, when did you actually decide you were going to go to the keeper's left? I decided the day before because we uh, we practiced penalties down that end uh, after training. Well, we we all had a, a penalty that we uh, were able to take before training, but after training, I I stayed behind with Lucas Neal and Ante Kovic, who was our third choice keeper, and uh, and I took five penalties and all on that side and I, I just felt comfortable and, and confident and so I knew that the night before if we did go to penalties or if I did happen to take one where I was going to go and uh, and so walking up from the halfway line to the penalty spot was completely different to when I was 14 years old I was so nervous when I was 14 my legs felt like jelly um, but this time it was it was a confidence uh, that was just I was just saying to myself do exactly what I did uh, the night before and and we're going to go to the World Cup. And there were 83,000 people in there, but I could just hear like sort of murmurs, whispers. Uh, it was uh, it was just like that. It was it was me and the goalkeeper, the only people in the stadium. So it was a, a bit of a, a surreal feeling. The feeling when it went in and nestled in the back of the net. I, I can't even imagine what that felt like. You rip the top off. You start running around half naked. Can you take us there? Yeah. Well. If you see the, the photo, um, just as I'm taking the penalty, so my, my head's down, and uh, you know, because if you, your head's too far up or too far back, then you're going to hit it too high that it goes over the bar. So I've got my head over the ball. Um, as I hit it, I've looked up, and I can just see uh, the ball going into the net. But, um, and so I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a goal, but I'm not 100% sure. So I've, I've sort of run off to start celebrating, but my face is a little bit stunned until probably a half a second later, I see the net move and then the crowd just erupt. And that's when I knew it was definitely in. And uh, and then just all the emotions came out, though. Ripping off my top uh, was something that wasn't planned, but where I was running to was, was planned because I knew where my family and the families of uh, my teammates were sitting and I went to celebrate right where they were. So... Yeah, that was uh, a special moment too. He had orchestrated what so many before him had obviously tried and failed to do. He'd got Australia into a World Cup. Now, he had a real aura about him, uh, Gus Hitting. But what made him so special, do you think, John? I think that, uh, like you said, he had an aura. Um, We all knew what he had achieved uh, earlier on in his coaching career and and just before he... um, he took over the Socceroos, not only with uh, South Korea, but also with the Dutch national team. With uh, He coached Real Madrid, which were probably one of the biggest clubs, if not the biggest club in the world in terms of their history. Um, but I, what I felt the most was in a big game and pressure moments, he was just so calm. And uh, that calmness uh, ended up uh, coming over to us players because, you know, we... 
you don't need to motivate a player for such a big game. You actually need to take the nerves away from him. And I think he did that just in the way he acted, you know, not only on the sideline, but in the changing room before the game. He, you know, I recall in Montevideo, you know, we're all so focused on the game and, and, and the energy's there and, and just the, the, the pressure of such a game is there in the room and you really feel it. He's just watching um, some game that uh, he recorded and, you know, and, and showing players, oh, look at, you know, this player, look how good he is. And it had nothing to do with our game. Um, so it, it just sort of showed that he wasn't worried, that we were prepared and we were ready. And uh, and we felt ready for that for that moment. Did he allow the players to be friends with him? No, no, no. He he was he was ruthless. He um, in training and and most friendly games that we had leading up to the, that big game, he would just be on our back. Um, he was he was hard and, uh, and and you know he could he could actually cut you with his words. You know sometimes he was that ruthless. And at the World Cup itself in 2006, obviously Australia's first appearance in. 32 years, hadn't scored at a World Cup before. We beat Japan uh, from behind, 3-1. Cahill scores the brace, but you score the third goal. I mean, does that stand out as one of your most special moments? It does. Uh, for me, probably just as special as uh, the Uruguay moment. I know everyone will ask or, or bring up to the Uruguay game, but uh, the Japan game, because it was our first World Cup win and we hadn't qualified for 32 years and we hadn't even scored a goal, like you said, um, and we're losing 1-0 uh, with only about uh, 15 minutes to go. And that's mm. when I came on. And it was it was sort of like that was our World Cup final. If we didn't beat Japan, we weren't going to go through the group stages. And, and we felt that, uh, you know, that would be a massive letdown. Uh, a lot of us uh, had been playing together for a number of years. And we, we knew this was going to be our World Cup and probably our only chance. And then, you know, we wanted to get through the group stages to show not only you know ourselves but the rest of the world what we can do and uh, so to, to come back in 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 the style that we did you know with Timmy scoring two quick goals and then you know I topped it off right at the end uh, that for me was was the game that uh, I'll remember most well before we leave the World Cup you did get through the group stages the round of 16 lost to 10 man Italy when Francesco Totti scored the winning penalty oh so hurts even to say it with the last kick of the game I mean if you could go back in time and try to change one thing over the course of your career would this be it yeah definitely would be it, it, it's uh, it's something that you know, I don't like to look back too much and, and have any regrets because, you know, decisions you make, you have to live with and, and you know, they, they happen for a reason and, and whatever else. But that that's the one moment that I just always think, what if? Um, because we, we it was it was our game to win. Um, Matarazzi, Italian defender, got sent off uh, quite early um, and we, we started to run all over Italy. We, we felt that we were... Uh, fitter than them anyway, um, and they were struggling in in terms of being able to deal with us. But you know they always had that threat of you know if they attacked us, they could hurt us uh, at any given moment. And then defensively they were very solid. But um, you know, uh, and I'm sure Gus you know probably looks back as well and thinks that you know he could have made subs a, a bit earlier. But um, you know that's easy in hindsight. He made so many good decisions for us in in the past games that. Uh, he felt that he was going to win it or we were going to win it in extra time and that's when he was going to go all out. But um, 
Mm. You know, they scored with the last kick of the game, which really hurt. Yeah, absolutely did. And we're talking to John Aloisi on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly with John, who has experienced the ups and downs as a manager post his playing career. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Well, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Football icon John Aloisi is our guest today. John, you played for a long time, but was coaching always something that interested you as an option after you hung up the boots? I think towards the end of my career, I'll, I'll say I'll go back to when I was in Spain and I was enjoying my football the most. I started to, to think about coaching and think about you know certain things that I would do if I was a coach and uh, and I wouldn't do you know what I liked and what I didn't like. So um, early on in my career, I didn't really think about it, but yeah, definitely once I started to hit. Uh, probably 28, 29, it started to, to pop up that uh, it was something that interested me. You accepted in the end a three-year contract to coach Melbourne Hart in 2012 after a year as the club's youth manager. How, how do you look back on that transition? Did, did you feel, John, like the apprenticeship was long enough? Yeah, look, I, I thought that experience was really good for me. Um, I know I wasn't successful at Melbourne Hart, but... Um, you know, I didn't realise at the time that, uh, you know, the club were trying to sell or the board was trying to sell the club. And so I was put in a, in a difficult situation because they cut, the you know, a lot of the, the footballing budget. Um, and it was unfortunate for me that I was part of, you know, in terms of them trying to sell and, and cutting budget. So, but uh, in, I really learnt a lot and, and I thought that uh, that held me in good stead for my next role after that. Yeah, and that next role um, was at Brisbane Roar in 2015. And you started well. You got the club... The top four finishes, I think, in your first two seasons there in semi-final spots. So things were looking great. But it, it all went downhill in 2018. Looking back on it, what went wrong that season, do you think? What went, went wrong was that I should have walked six months earlier. And mm. um, and I think what uh, had happened was the, the Melbourne Heart situation actually, uh, you know, it gave me that experience to be able to deal with what I was going to deal with up in Brisbane. And, and uh, when I first stepped into the football club in Brisbane, you know, we got kicked out of our training ground because they, the club hadn't paid. Um, players hadn't been paid their super. Uh, staff, uh, you know, weren't getting paid on time. And so I was able to deal with it and, and hold the group together and, and really support uh, the players and, and the staff. And uh, and for the first uh, two years, you know, the first year we were one point off of winning uh, the Premier's plate. And that was... Uh, if we beat Melbourne Victory in the last game of the season, uh, we would have won it, which we drew. Uh, mm. We had a really good season. The second year, we had a great season as well, finished uh, third. Um, and it, this is in terms of, you know, we're, we're competing against uh, other clubs that had bigger budgets. And then the third season, we finished in the top six, which was final football again. So for the three seasons, you know, we probably batted above our weight because of what we are dealing with. Um, but that was after that third season, I, I realised that, you know, we needed, if we wanted to compete, we needed to, um, you know, start to, uh, you know, in terms of budget, uh, you know, compete with the other clubs. And with the other clubs, I'm meaning a, a Sydney FC, mm-hmm. Melbourne Victory, 
uh, Melbourne City, Western Sydney Wanderers, and you know we're probably about the seventh in, in terms of our budget. And so I sat down with the club and, and said to them, you know, uh, this is the situation. What do you want to achieve? They said they want to finish top two, top three. And I said, well, with what we're dealing with, it's going to be nearly impossible. And they said, well, you've done it in the first three years um, that we're qualified for the, the final series. You know, you can do it again. And uh, it, it ended up becoming too hard. And um, and I should have left then, um, but I didn't because I wanted to, to stay with the players and, you know, and, and you know, see my contract through. But, uh, you know, mm. in the end, I, I just felt it was, uh, they were on a different path to me and, and that's why I ended up walking. Football is important, obviously, but, but health is everything. You had open-heart surgery late last year. I mean, completely unexpected and completely terrifying, I'd imagine, as well. It was terrifying. Uh, um, I, I didn't really know what was wrong with me. I, I just felt um, that I was a bit short of breath and um, I wasn't feeling 100%. And, you know, probably my, my footballing background in, in terms of knowing yourself the way you should be feeling um, helped me. And uh, so I just went to see the local GP and, he did a, just a normal checkup, and um, once he listened to my heart, he, he asked me if I had a murmur before, and I said no, and so he sent me to the cardiologist, and then once they did the ultrasound scan, they, they realised that I had um, a major leak in my mitral valve, and uh, and I was leaking 50% of my blood, so my heart was uh, was expanding to, you know, um, you know, a size that it shouldn't be and it was overworking and um, virtually once they they saw that they said you have to get that uh, repaired or replaced and um, you have to go in and have surgery the, the following week and uh, which was you know it was a shock and um, but it was something that I knew I needed to have and you know life sort of uh, goes past you pretty quick in terms of oh this you know this might all go wrong here because, uh, you know, you just don't know how these surgeries are going to go. And it was a major surgery. They had to actually, you know, cut through my my sternum, my chest and, uh, you know, put my heart on the machine and uh, and deflate my lungs and, and, and see if they could repair the mitral valve and, or they had to replace it with a mechanical valve or a pig's valve. And, and uh, lucky enough for me that they were able to repair it and, and the recovery's gone really well, and I feel back to normal again. Jeez, that's fantastic news. Uh, what was a pretty terrifying situation, as I say. And you mentioned the visit to the GP is the first port of call. But what prompted you to go there? Just you touched on it before, but what were the symptoms? How did you know something was up? The thing was uh, a little bit short of breath. So when I would uh, sit down or, or lie down and watch, and mainly it was football, because uh, yeah, I was doing some optus work, and so I'd watch uh, a lot of uh, games at home on my TV and, and, and I could just feel my heart like palpitating and, and really sort of sometimes it felt like it was jumping out of my chest. And uh, so that that's that was the, the thing that I realised that something wasn't quite right and uh, yeah, lucky I did because, um, you know, I was still uh, doing, you know, my workouts at home and, uh, you know, going to the gym and, you know, if I pushed myself too much, you know, who knows what could have happened because they did ask me if I had a heart attack and, and I didn't think I did, and I don't think I, I did have one, but uh, I could have easily had one, and it could have been fatal. Wow. And what now, John? I mean, you mentioned Optus Sport. You've done some great TV work for them, but the management fire still burns. How close do you think you were to the Melbourne Victory job that was awarded to Grant Brebner? I'd 
was pretty close, and that's what they, they said to me anyway. I, I did a couple of uh, presentations uh, for the football committee and then to the board, and then um, it was uh, supposedly down to two, and um, they called me up the night before. Uh, they announced Grant Bredner, and um, they said they were going to go in a different direction, which you know I understand that's part of coaching, that's part of uh, being in management. You know, Some jobs you get and some you miss out on. I definitely will get back into to coaching, um, whether that's here in Australia or eventually going overseas again. But um, you know, I enjoy it. Uh, there's still uh, you know that fire in the belly. Um, you know, I'm wanting to achieve more, and uh, you know, I I feel that I've got a lot to, to give still in, in the coaching uh, scenario. But you know, in the meantime, um, I, I'm doing Optus work, which is great because we've got Champions League and and also Premier League. Yeah, that's just around the corner and it keeps me involved in football. Fantastic. Well, John Aloisi, it's been great to chat today. I'm not overstating things by saying that you're an Australian sporting hero and while you'll always be remembered for that penalty in 2005, you very much had a long and distinguished career at the very top of your chosen sport. You were driven, you were dedicated, but you're also humble as well and no doubt there's more chapters to be written in your managerial journey. We wish you the best of luck. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks again for having me on. John Aloisi there. But stay tuned because after the break, we'll go up into the commentary box and catch up with Craig Foster and his recollections of that magical night. Thorpe is coming in. Gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We're looking back on the best of your sporting life for 2020. Hard to believe, but it's been 15 years since that magical night the Socceroos qualified for the 2006 World Cup. And it all got too much for so many of us. Chief among them, the man who was in the commentary box, he'd worn the jersey for so long, Craig Foster. We're joined by one of Australia's most respected and renowned football identities. Craig Foster played for clubber and country over a 15-year career that took him around the world. A midfielder, he played 29 times for the Socceroos before becoming a permanent fixture in our lounge rooms as a newsreader and chief football analyst, often into the wee hours of the morning on SBS. But the passion he showed for the game has now also been channeled into human rights and his tireless work to secure the release of refugee footballer Hakeem Al-Arabi has brought him to the attention of a wider audience. Craig, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure always to speak to you guys. Can I be so bold as to call you Fozzie? It just feels right. <laughs> of course you can. It'd feel I, a bit I, odd otherwise. Yeah. Well, I feel like yeah. you would have got Fozzie more than you got Craig where you grew up. You had a country upbringing in yeah. Lismore, New South Wales. Yeah, that's true. Where, you know, a, a nickname's important, isn't it? You know, no one's known by their first name, certainly not in the country anyway, but it's a, a wonderful part of Australia. Many of your listeners would know about it. I think Lismore's probably a bit less known than its surrounds, 
which includes uh, Ballina, Yamba, um, Byron Bay, um, Jigai, uh, Nimbin, Bangalore. You know, it's just a really extraordinary part of the country. So it was it was lovely to um, you know spend the first fifteen years there. Oh, beautiful part of the world. And Lennox had as well. You would have spent a bit of time at. Lennox, you, yeah. Yeah, you started at as Ganalaba Soccer Club, wasn't it? The Mighty Hornets at four years mm-hmm. of age. What what took you there? How did you discover football? Well, only because my older brother started playing and he's about 18 months older. And so, um, you know, I, I'm sure I was on the sideline screaming and kicking um, and, uh, you know, throwing a tantrum saying, I want to follow him out there. We were always very close. And, and, um, uh, We'd, we'd been already probably mucking around at home. So he went out to play. And they said, OK, we'd better put a, a shirt on this little tyke as well, throw some boots on him and get him out there. And so I started in the first couple of years just playing in years two, you know, kind of playing a, a year or two up. As the years went on, you weren't scared to chase the dream, were you? You obviously debuted with Sydney, Croatia in 88. You moved to Victoria only a year later to play with Sunshine, uh, George Cross. And then there was even a stint overseas in Hong Kong in 1992. Yeah. Yeah, the football landscape was very different in those times. But you're right, I was I was probably in a bit of a hurry and um, I wanted to go abroad and play. Um, but the NSL, as it was so-called, was only six months of the year, basically. So mm. players were doing one of two things. They were either going abroad full-time, in which case to do that and go to Europe, you know, you more or less had to be um, a soccer rule already. And I was only in late teens, early 20s. Or what a lot were doing, and even a lot of soccerers at that time, um, was spending six months of the year or seven months of the year playing here in Australia and then taking the opportunity to play the rest of the year over in Asia. And so that meant that we could be full-time. Um, we considered ourselves as professionals, therefore, and we were able to you know, continue to try and build our game with a view towards you know, higher honours. So I went even over to play in Singapore, with a, a very well-known former Socceroo and uh, Victorian. He used to play for Preston Lions. His name was uh, Warren Spink. He was mm. a fabulous little uh, number nine for Australia in the National Soccer League. And we lived together over there and played for a few months, came, and you'd come back and play again. And you'd vacillate between the two. And it was a wonderful experience, but, of course, for every player, my eyes were always on you know, trying to play for the Socceroos and, uh, and, you know, and at the highest level that I possibly could. Well, just on the Socceroos, Foz, and you mentioned you're in a hurry. Well, you, rep- you were identified pretty early in the piece as well. You represented Australia at under-16 level, and you, you reached the quarterfinals of the 1985 FIFA Under-16 World Championship in China. I mean, I can't imagine what you took away from a trip like that as a bright-eyed youngster. Yeah, it was a really interesting trip. It was a big culture shock for all of us, really, you know, walking out of Lismore uh, into Tianjin, China in 1985. Uh, and, you know, of course, we did the usual um, a tour guide um, and sightseeing. Yeah. You know, we went to the Great Wall and so on. And, yeah, I was only 15, was one of the youngest in that group. It was the first, was the first under-16 World Cup. So FIFA had just at that time created a new youth tournament. They felt that they needed to go younger than under-20s and give players uh, a better international opportunity at a younger age. So we were the first... Uh, under-16 Australian team. Subsequently, and today, it's called the under-17. They changed the, the age sometime later. But, yeah, look, it was a, a wonderful experience. Um, you know, there, again, there were some great players that came in that group with us. Paul Trimboli comes to mind in particular, you know, who's 
Billy is, I think, head of football or in a key role at Melbourne Victory, was you know quite a legendary socceroo, and is aside from being a, a fantastic human being, was just an absolutely marvellous player, and I just remember from those days what a fabulous footballer he was. So we had a, a great tournament, but the nice thing out of it was we didn't know that at the end they selected a team of that tournament, and somehow my name came out of the hat. Someone's pulled it out randomly, seemingly, and um, and that was nice. So, you know, I was able to finish the tournament with nice memories of you know, all of us having done well. We beat West Germany. We beat um, Argentina. Um, sadly, we went out of penalties in the quarterfinal to Guinea. In fact, I was one of the two who missed one of the penalties. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Next, Craig Foster takes his blossoming talents to the international stage with the Socceroos and on to England. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with former footballer, analyst and humanitarian Craig Foster. Well, Fozzie, in 1996, you make your Socceroos debut and I think it was a World Cup qualifier against New Zealand, was it not? What do you remember of the occasion or did it come earlier than that that year? A little bit earlier. We went to South Africa actually and we played against Ghana in Johannesburg and that was... You know, it was great memories, that tour. It was a wonderful group, you know, um, all of whom are dear friends today. You know, after the Under-16 World Cup, I'd actually came back to play an exhibition game before then kind of, you know, hopefully going on to great glory. And I, I copped a pretty bad tackle. Um, I, was, I was still 15 at the time, which kind of destroyed my right knee. So it took me a long time to battle back, you know, and that was part of going to Asia and trying to rediscover, um, you know, my... Um, not so much ambition, but just you know rhythm in the game and and being able to perform at the level that was going to you know make me an international. And it didn't come until basically ten years later after that injury, you know, when I was twenty six. Mm. So by that time, I had had a, a, a huge number of injuries. You know, I had screws in ankles and and knees had gone. <laughs> yeah. So I remember it very much as just continuing to battle on, you know, and just never, ever giving up. You know, I had this dream of achieving what I wanted to achieve in the sport, similar to, you know, any other field of life, you know, and what it is that we set our mind on. And there were a huge amount of barriers that were kind of propped up and uh, and I just kept going and going and going and going. So by the time I made that game against Ghana, I was with actually some of the friends who I'd played 10 years ago or 10 years before uh, with the under-16s, you know, including trimmers. Uh, Paul Trimboli, and we we played in that game, so I remember it very well. And afterwards, after what, everything that I'd been through, I took that shirt, got everyone to sign, and I framed it for my parents because they'd done so much for all of us, not just me, but my two other brothers. Oh, it's fantastic. What a gesture. And you would go on, of course, to earn 29 caps. You even captained the side, and you scored nine goals. Your first goal for the national team, June 97, a 13 nil drubbing of the Solomon Islands. Now, having watched that game, Fozzie, I reckon you'd have been pretty disappointed <laughs> if you hadn't got on the score sheet. Yeah. Yeah, well, thankfully Australia is now in Asia, and so you know we don't have to compete 
in with the Pacific Islands because that's that's in both our interests, I think. Um, you know, because those score lines aren't doing them any service and certainly not wasn't doing us any either. Yeah, well pre Asia, as you're about to find out this year, five months later in ninety seven, you went from one extreme to the other because things are about to get a lot more difficult and it obviously came down to that two leg playoff under the old World Cup qualification system against Iran, of course, for a seat at the table at France ninety eight. Now it finishes 1-1 in Tehran in front of, they say 128,000 people were at the Azadi Stadium, Fozzie, and it was only supposed to hold 100,000. What was that experience like to play in front of that many people? Uh, it was shrill in the sense that it was the only game I ever played in where you couldn't scream to your own teammate. And that makes playing very difficult because... You know, as everyone who plays the game or any other, um, certainly ball sport and team sport would know, you know, communication is, you know, 90% of it. You know, this guy's here, that guy's doing well, you need to do that better, keep, keep an eye out for this, come on, guys. And I remember being almost face-to-face with teammates in that game and just yelling at the top of our lungs and you couldn't hear because 128,000 people were just whistling, just particularly when we got the ball um, and almost right throughout the, the entire game. It was a very surreal experience. So it was almost like playing in isolation within a team. And so it was a very difficult game. And at home, of course, most teams um, are stronger, particularly in Asia, and you know, very partisan, you know, hugely uh, passionate uh, Iranian football crowd at home. And Iranians just absolutely love football. It's a wonderful football nation. Uh, they uh, were really giving it to the Aussies. And so it was a difficult game. And what I remember most of all was the performance of young Harry Kuehl. I think mm. by that time he was probably 19. And I'd been, so we're talking 97, I'd been in there for a year. He came in, I think he played his first cap at 17. So I think he predated me. But he was still a kid, very much a kid. He used to sit in his room and play PlayStation. And, you know, <laughs> he was just a very quiet kid. You know, he was, he was, a part of the group, but a little bit on the periphery. You know, everyone knew he was an immense talent, but he was just a lovely kid, but, you know, terribly quiet. And But as soon as he got on the field, he just exploded. It was just this different person, you know. And I remember in that game the difficulty of trying to perform it at the highest level for the majority of us. And I remember Harry Kuehl just putting on a performance that was Kuehl-esque is one reason why, you know, uh, I consider him just an incredible performer for Australia. And I've often said that every time Harry was called upon, every time he was needed, he was there. You know, Timmy's obviously the other one. But, you know, at a really young age, extraordinary. And, of course, it was Harry who scored in that game. It was a 1-1. Uh, and he scored at home as well. You know, every time he was needed to step up, didn't matter what the situation was, whether in Tehran or the MCG, you knew, we knew. But Harry Kuehl was just going to approach it like any other game and, and be the superstar he was. It was really brilliant to see. Yeah, we talk about the big crowd, but when Harry scored that opener, they might as well, the stands might as well have been empty. It was an in- incredible silence. Um, a week later, November 29 at the MCG, I mean, this is a night that will live forever in the minds of those who were there or even watching from home, Fozzie. You're obviously 2-0 up, 3-1 on aggregate. Early in the second half, really, Ovidmar scores, gives you that score line. What happened next was just inconceivable. I can't imagine how many times you've discussed this or recounted this over the journey. How do you look back on what happened next? 
Well, I try not to, but, uh, you know, in, in recent years, people kind of want to discuss it, but we didn't talk about it much for a long time. I've never watched the game again, and I'll, I'm sure I never will. Um, we, we, There's no way in the world that we wouldn't have won that game, if not by the two or an even greater margin, because as everyone, every sports person knows at any level, when you're in a game and you're completely on top, and the other, and the opponent is kind of demoralised. They know, you know, you're at home. Um, for, for those of us, I guess, or for professional athletes who know what it's like playing in front of a huge 85,000 partisan home crowd, and you know that the opponent's not dealing with that well, and you're playing well, and your team is on the absolute top of the game, and you're leading, and and look likely to increase that. I mean, we missed so many chances that night; it was unbelievable. Um, there's just no way in the world that Iran was coming back in that game until it was interrupted by a person running out and jumping on the net. And sadly, what happened then is that interrupted the momentum of the game. And football is all about momentum. It's up and down and all over the place. But in a game where you're dominant, it's only going one way. And it's extremely difficult to overcome. You know, when an opponent has more quality and, and did have more quality, you know, even, I mean, I I have many Iranian friends, and in fact, many of the refugees who I advocate now for who are offshore in PNG or are here in Australia who I've met, many of them Iranians, and the first thing they say to me is, you know, I was five or six years old and I was in school and, you know, and we all stopped and that day of school was about anticipating and watching that game. We watched Mm -hmm. it, you know, in our under six, you know, in our our kind of first or, or second grade class. And they knew they were gone. They say, we still don't know how we got through. But that momentum killed it. It killed ours. It allowed them to refocus, to reorganize. Mm. And sadly, when we came back out after that, um, you know, in, in a minute break, um, the, the momentum had changed. The game had changed. And we didn't deal with that well enough to be able to you know, get the win that was necessary. Yeah, and it was the serial pest Peter Hoare who came, of course, uh, came out into the field and damaged um, the Iranian net, as it were, and they scored in the 75th, 79th minute. And yet, you know, despite being undefeated throughout the entire qualifying campaign, um, Australia had again failed to qualify. And Les Murray and Johnny Warren, two guys who you would come to know very, very well, particularly post-career Fozzie, who had long campaigned for the game to get the respect it deserved in this country, they were distraught in commentary. I mean, I think Johnny Warren openly wept on air. Yeah, he did. Yeah, they knew a number of things. But firstly, that you know the timing was great. You know, it had captured the uh, attention uh, and the interest of Australia, and they knew that that game had been carried around Australia. I think there might have been like six or eight million Australians watched it in in homes, clubs, and pubs. So it, you know, they knew that it was a huge moment for the game. Uh, they also knew that that was a really quality team. I mean, you know, take me out, but you had, you know, we had teammates there who were some of the greatest players we've ever had. I mean, Paul Ocon was injured at the time, actually, but would have been available for France had we got through. But, you know, you had Ned Zelich and Mark Viduka and you had Harry and, and uh, Stan Lazaridis left back. You had Robbie Slater and, you know, you had two legends of the game, uh, you know, Arnold and, uh, and Farina, uh, you know, who were... Uh, on the bench or out, you know, you had uh, Craig Moore at the back, you know, we had Ivanovic uh, on the bench, you had Alex Tobin, um, you know, that was a fantastic team. It was a really great generation. Of course, you had the Vidmar boys as well. It's really quite mm-hmm. amazing. So how we didn't get through is, uh, you know, something that still shake heads today. The willingness for you to speak up for what you believe in and what you feel is right is 
clearly evident now, but it was evident back then as well. The Confederations Cup was that year, Saudi Arabia. I think you played every minute of that tournament, but you also played a big role in a, in a pay dispute at the time. And despite being relatively new to the team, you know, was it your belief the players weren't getting a big enough slice of the prize money? I'd been a um, delegate uh, on the board of the Players' Union for a few years by that time, and, and I was committed to the game through the players' cause. So for me, and it continues today, I'm still a trustee to the uh, Professional Football Association because I'm a former chairman and, and even I was CEO for a while when they were in a bit of trouble. But, um, you know, to me, it's always been about building the game uh, through the well-being and the conditions of the players. Uh, and therefore, that that really played into what happened at that stage. So the outgoing coach, who sadly has passed away now, um, Eddie Thompson, we we qualified for what was the first ever Confederations Cup. So we didn't really know what it was about. We didn't know what was happening. And as he was leaving the post, he said to a few of us, look, there's some prize money on this, and the governing body is kind of trying to hide that from you. And we knew immediately that that was going to be a key opportunity, a leverage point, to bring the governing body to the table to talk about a whole wide range of conditions for the game. And we've been trying to do that for quite some time. Sadly, what fans sometimes don't but really need to understand is that when when the relationship between players and, and, a, and a game itself is not ideal, then players can only really use these major leverage points, which tend to be the most important moments, you know, in the big tournaments. Um, that's the sad part. Because we go into, we went into the Confederations Cup in the first... You know, major tournaments in 74 of the males that Australia had been in. And we, of course, we were desperate to play. But equally, I felt strongly, as did some others, that this was a moment that we had to really, um, you know, put a, put a line um, for the game to say this is the way that players are going to have to be treated in future. And by treating players appropriately, we can then acquire more talent, we can produce better talent, we can grow the game, and that's in the interests of the game. That's what it's all about. Mm. So, yeah, we had a... We threatened a strike, um, and that was, you know, as you'd expect, that was, you know, testing times for the squad itself. You know, we had some great legends of the game there, and, and you know, I'd only been in there every year. But I was you know, uh, in front of the group you know, pretty constantly saying, okay, guys, this is not about you. This is actually about the future of the game. And you need to understand that the, 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 the players that are going to come after us need better conditions. And before I got here, I've played with this whole group of players whose knees are gone, their backs are gone, they can't walk, they're going to have to have hip replacement surgeries because they've had no physios, they've had, you know, they've had no medical care, there's no wellbeing support, we've got, you know... So all of these things, and this is the moment when we have to put all these principles into place, and you're going to have to take responsibility for that. And of course, some right, you know, some fair enough are saying, well, you know, I just want to play in this tournament. You know, this is important to me and my career. And yeah. and a bunch of us just kept, you know, and thankfully we won the argument by saying this is actually not about you. And I and I said, look, I, I don't know how many caps I had at that time. I might have had like ten. And I said, I've got ten caps. You know, I would love to have sixty. But I'm prepared to trade the other 50 for the players that are going to come after me. So we have to step forward here, and this is the start of that. And after that, we went on to then uh, develop uh, the new model for the A-League and, and the W-League, which was called the ATL. We invested um, you know, three, $400,000 in that. That was the spur to the new professional game. So it was the, really the beginning of uh, an era of players in our game necessarily quite sadly, but necessarily having to actually take leadership in, 
in the progress of the sport itself, but I certainly felt very strongly about it. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, of course, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, Craig Foster's move to the media, the commentary box, and that thrilling November night against Uruguay in 2005. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with the former Socceroo turned award-winning broadcaster turned refugee advocate Craig Foster. Well, Fozzie, you retire at 34 and you start your media career as an analyst pretty much straight away and a commentator for Channel 7 and SBS's weekly football program On The Ball. Was it a culture shock jumping to the other side of the fence because it appeared to be a natural transition? Uh, I wouldn't say it was a culture shock. Um, it seemed um, like an, a pretty natural path. Um, and Channel C7, as it was at the time, which was their pay television arm, mm. you know, were kind of saying, look, you know, come along and talk. And and subsequently, you know, after almost two decades in the media, you know, I know that when players are asked to talk on camera and demonstrate an ability to, you know, formulate an argument and, and think a little bit differently and articulate uh, the game in different ways, then, of course, you know, it immediately stands out. And you'll often say, well, that, you know, that person needs to be here. You know, that's that's good talent, as they, as they, uh, as they often say. So uh, Les and Johnny needed someone on the 2002 World Cup. Back in 2002, Channel 9 actually had the rights. And, of course, you know, one, they expected Australia to uh, qualify or they're hoping that was going to happen. And we didn't qualify because of the financial state of the game. It was one of the great scandals that ended up seeing the administration overhaul. And Channel 9 said, look, you know, we don't need this whole tournament anymore. Um, so we'll just keep the business end. And we've got whatever it was. It might have been 40 plus games that we'll give to SBS, you know, for a tippence. So SBS came in quite late, I think only a few months before, and said, look, we'll be happy to, to broadcast that. So they had to put a team together quickly, and Johnny and Les came to me and said, look, you've been on a few times, you know, we like working with you, and, you know, would you consider doing it? So I thought, okay, that sounds like great fun with these two. So we had a, a, a magic month. And it was also a great insight into the way that SBS worked and started to bring me inside the family, if you like, because we gelled immediately culturally and, and you know, with our values. You've only got to mention the word Uruguay to any Australian football fan and the memories come flooding back to that magical November night in Sydney in 2005. You were obviously in the commentary box alongside Simon Hill on the night. I mean, what does that night stir inside you now 15 years on if 97 was uh was so painful what does this bring back i knew at the time and the reason why i was so nervous during the commentary not nervous to do my job um not that i couldn't find words uh, except when we <laughs> we actually uh, when john Aloisi, um you know scored the penalty uh, when words were very difficult to come through the tears but just nervous to my core because I knew it was so important for the game. You know, we, we used to talk at SBS about the mission. That's what Les would talk about. And that gives you a sense of, you know, he, he genuinely believed that it, that he and and Johnny and all of us in SBS was, was, were evangelists for something Australia needed. 
Whereas people often thought, oh, they're just crazy dudes who love the damn football. But it actually never was that. It, what it was was, yes, that's true. We were and are crazy people who love football. But we actually believe that the multicultural, inclusive nature of the game is um, something that is to the benefit of not just the world, of Australia and to the world more, more broadly. You know, when that occurred, what I recall really clearly is two things. One is knowing and getting all the messages of all the parties happening everywhere around the country, you know, in the Italian communities and Croatian communities, which, which are Australian communities, but all of these cultural um, um, areas who had grown up into Australian culture and life through football now had, had their own new country make the World Cup of the game that they loved and brought this passion with them from their old country. It was an incredible moment of bringing all of this tapestry of culture together through a sporting team. It was amazing. And the other thing I remember well is leaving the stadium and an older Indonesian man came up in tears and just said, look, you know, and I said, look, this is incredible, you know, and everyone was just crying all over the place. And he said, you know, Craig and Les, this is the first time that I feel Australian. And I said, what do you mean? Said, well, how long have you been here? And, I, and he said, oh, I've been here you know, 30 years. But, you know, this country has never really embraced the game that I love. You know, I'm Indonesian. And, uh, and for the first time I've seen a, a, a team of, an Australian team based of so much cultural diversity play in and represent us in the game that I love and he said, this is the first time that I genuinely feel that I'm really a part of this country. And, you know, I was really struck by that. And so we kind of hugged and moved on and everyone was just elated. And it was all of those types of stories coming out. People were very reflective on their on the their own journeys through the game. And that's the beauty that the players bring. You know, and even on air, I was always conscious to bring it back to the players and say, look, you know, we're, we're just mouthpiece here, but it's the people on the field who are having to perform. And what they did tonight is extraordinary. And the joy that they can bring to people is really is, is quite amazing. The reason I say mixed feelings, though, is because sitting in 2020 and seeing where the game is at now, you know, 15 years later, we're facing again some of the challenges that we were facing then. And that's mm. what concerns me. So whilst it was wonderful, I just think that football tends to not, learn our lessons well and in some respects we're having to now overcome similar challenges that you know I've been a part of fighting against too many times yeah yeah on the night itself it's it's 1-0 Bresciano scores obviously 1-1 on aggregate after regulation time then extra time that doesn't break the deadlock it goes to penalties and it's obviously incredibly intense I mean how difficult was it to stay at least close to impartial or when did you realize there was absolutely zero chance of that happening um, I think impartiality, look, I, I, I always understood and we knew at SBS that impartiality is important. Um, when there is, when the Socceroos were playing, I would explain to Les and say, I think people can understand though that as an ex-player that I can be partial as long as I'm fair. Okay, so, um, you know, I could be support. And this is what I sold to Les anyway, but the way I used to, otherwise I couldn't have done it. I, I used to say to him, Les, I cannot sit there and just t- treat the two teams in the same way. You can't ask me as an ex-Sakaroo to sit on this World Cup qualifier and pretend that I don't care. Yeah. So 
of course I'm going to care. But if we mess something up or we give what should have been a penalty, then what, I, what, what being impartial means is saying that that should have been a penalty for the other team. That's, in, that's in my view, um, where people go wrong, is they become blind to one team, and that's wrong. And, and I don't believe we ever do that. Um, but there was a moment in that game, I recall, when um, I think the, 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 an opposing coach got up and threw the ball at us or threw it away or something. And, you know, and I think that was perhaps a moment when, uh, you know, I, I, I went from ex-player broadcaster to just ex-player. You know, and but when it came to the um, penalties, yeah, look, I'm I'm perfectly happy to say I just completely lost. I just completely lost every everything I had. I, I just was, I was just far too emotional. I couldn't count the penalties. I was relying on. In fact, at one point, I think Simon said, "Oh, look, you know, if we get this, we're through." And I said, "Are yeah. you sure? <laughs> like, you know, what is the score here?" You know, it was just too much. It was just it, it physically was too much for me. I was well, never. I was an on-air uh, um, analyst, if you like. You know, and and loved debating issues around the game, uh, in the game. I was never a co-commentator as a profession. I didn't see it my profession, um, but. Uh, Les always kind of made me do it, if you like, um, and convinced me that it was necessary. So I uh, tried to prepare for that uh, game, but um, a part of me, for the first time ever, was saying, don't over-prepare because I didn't want to jinx it. So I had all these ridiculous emotions that any ex-sports person can well understand. But the intensity of that moment was the greatest that I'd ever experienced anything. It was far greater than playing in a game in 97 or anything like that. Being a player, players can train ourselves psychologically to deal with almost any level of pressure. And they do it through process or whatever whatever mechanisms they have. Otherwise, we couldn't perform. But being off camera, I found always much more difficult. That's why I was constantly in these big moments, you know, turning into a blubbering mess. Yeah. Because the players deal with it. But off off camera, you know the consequences. You you're in touch with the fans. You know the people who are working to make it happen. You know, there's all of these this much broader context around it. Yeah. Uh, and you also, I in the, on that night, you know, many of them were my teammates, my ex teammates. And so, even at the most basic level, I just wanted them to get through. I wanted to see them in a World Cup. I wanted it for them. Mm. And so, when it happened, um, Simon. Uh, who's a quite brilliant commentator, Simon Hill, had, of course, his script well prepared. You know, if if we didn't get through or if we did, he knew exactly what he was going to say. That got ruined. You know, he had a framework. (laughs) And so as soon as it went in, you know, his job was to deliver, you know, this because he knew it was going to be on every DVD and uh, (laughs) on on YouTube and every highlight reel for eternity. You know, I hadn't thought that far. You know, I just thought (laughs) we need to get this penalty in. I didn't care where it was going to go. And then what happened is, you know, he then tried to professionally deliver some sort of lines. And all I was interested in was just screaming my head off <laughs> and just celebrating in tears with, with staff. And see, every, there's a small uh, commentator booth. And I was in such distress that as we were taking the penalties, I was at the back of the commentator booth kind of peering over like a child. Like it was almost like I didn't want to watch. I was just kind of trying to see just enough. And then when it happened... All of our people, all of our staff burst into tears and, and cheering and so on. Everyone was crying. 
So the only one who wasn't crying was Simon because he's trying to do <laughs> Paul though was trying to deliver his script, as you guys well know, being in and, broadcasting and radio. So and in you the was, end, I think you were squeezing a, his arm so hard the circulation probably got cut off as well. Well, I wasn't near him because I was everyone was jumping on me, all all the staff, you know, you, you understand these people you know, the reason that SBS was and still is loved by the football community is because they know that everyone at SBS loves it as much as them. You know, it's not a question of a profession. It never was. And I, and I knew that I was never going to just sit on air like Les. It was his whole life. It wasn't mine. Um, I felt there was a job needed to be done for Australian football. Um, and, and I thought I had, I had the willingness and I had some capabilities to do that. But I, it was never going to last forever. Um, so it was, and all of the people who are working behind are football fans. Like if you walk into the SBS um, sport department, now there's some cycling stuff up. It used to be like every shirt from everywhere in the world and moments and posters and, you know, like their people are crazy for the game. And, you know, you'd have Italians and, and uh, you know, Serbs and, uh, you know, you'd have um, Chinese and you'd have Indonesians and, and Greeks and, and Hungarians like theirs. That's what it was. And so all these people were in this room in this historic moment after 32 years, like it's not difficult to imagine you know, the, the scenes. And so we just completely lost our mind. I completely lost my mind on camera. Uh, and it's, 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 it's not good. You know, it's not professional. But in the end, I think people kind of resonated with it because that actually is football. And the yeah. way I carried on like a goose is actually exactly what they were doing in their living rooms. Um, it, I probably shouldn't have done it, but um, it worked. Oh, if ever there was a night it was acceptable, it was certainly this one. I'm glad you painted that picture as well, Foz, because <laughs> I've always thought when your good mate, your former teammate, Johnny Aloisi, put us through from the spot and uh, and tore off, uh, you know, ripped his shirt off, waving yeah. it above his head, you were actually doing the exact same thing in the commentary <laughs> box. I wasn't far wrong. Exactly. It was totally right. Um, there was more craziness in the commentary box than there. You know, so everything that people were doing at home um, and everything that they were doing in the stadium that's what we were doing. Les knew that was going to happen because he took me aside two days before lunch and he said, look, um, the only thing I ask is, I know it's going to be difficult. This is going to be very difficult for you. But um, all I ask is that, you know, whatever happens, you know, um, try and, uh, you know, be um, nonpartisan to, to the greatest extent that you can. And secondly, um, just don't lose, don't lose everything, you know. Um, but I didn't lose everything until we actually threw. So as far as I'm concerned, that was fair enough. <laughs> Absolutely. We're talking to Craig Foster on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly with Fozzie, who has set, of course, his trademark leadership qualities to harness how sport contributes to the world, to human rights and social justice. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Football icon Craig Foster is our guest today. Well, Craig, you were part of the furniture there at SBS for the best part of 18 years as a commentator, a newsreader, and almost everything in between. But you farewelled the network in June. Why was that? Um, Because, uh, for a number of reasons, but one is because there's a lot of social issues that I need. Um, feel I need to be involved in 
And one of those, as you've mentioned previously on this, is the refugee sector. And I can't do that to the requisite level um, if I'm working for a government organisation. It is a government uh, broadcaster. So it, it was time. Hakeem Al-Arabi was arrested at Bangkok Airport November 27, 2018, based on an Interpol warrant issued by Bahrain. Now, the footballer had fled his home country years earlier, of course. He was accused of vandalising a police station despite playing in a televised football match at the time of the attack. Nevertheless, he was arrested. He was tortured. He'd successfully sought asylum in Australia four years before that, but it was a trip to Thailand, supposed to be a honeymoon, of course. He was instead put behind bars with the real prospect of being extradited to Bahrain, which would have been a gruesome outcome. Fozzie, you're a refugee ambassador for Amnesty, but can you remember or pinpoint the moment where it struck you that I just have to help this man? I can, because I had to sit down with my wife and talk it through. So a few people had got in touch and I didn't know about him for whatever reason. I hadn't, I wasn't that aware. I might have read it, but didn't really resonate a couple of years earlier when Hakeem had spoke out against one of the members of the royal family in the FIFA race. I read other commentary from particularly one of the more prominent uh, activists in London, Syed Awadeh, but I hadn't read one from Hakeem. So anyway, he got himself in trouble largely because of that in what happened, what uh, turned out to be several years later when he went to Thailand. And I quickly started to have a look at the case um, and looked at, you know, what he'd been incarcerated for, the fact that he'd been tortured, how he came here. He was still on a protected visa, so he was a refugee at the time. He was a Muslim kid. And so all of those uh, issues meant and started to to um, give me the understanding that he was in even deeper trouble than what we thought. Yeah, and he was released February 11, 2019, okay, when Bahrain withdrew its extradition order and Thailand set him free, of course. I think you call Hakeem your little brother now, don't you? I just can't imagine, uh, were you just engulfed by relief, exhaustion? And what sort of toll did it take on you? Yeah, it was both, it was both that. Um, but look, it took a far greater toll on Hakeem than on his wife. Which is why you know whatever time we were spending, uh, and it was you know all day and night because you know we were running a campaign that was global. So that meant you know half of it, if not more, was happening in the middle of the night, you know, in Europe and US, as we were getting other sports on board and CNN and you know major international you know BBC World and others. So it was you know. not only answering social media and trying to drive that with a team alongside, a surreptitious team, which I was able to put together throughout, uh, but, and by that I mean a, a Twitter team who we communicated uh, privately in order to be able to create a whole range of messages so that I didn't have to uh, do much of the uh, most extreme advocacy, if you like, but also in the middle of the night just doing um, interviews and other things. But I had met Hakeem twice by the time he got out, and so... I'd seen what had happened to him. I'd been in touch with his amazing wife, you know, very regularly. And so when it happened, we knew that it was likely to happen. You know, the ambassador called and said it would likely, it might happen within 72 hours. And then the foreign ministry called uh, on the second day and said, we think it's happening tonight. That was, I think, six or seven hours away. And I just recall sitting where I am now, which is in my living room in Sydney, uh, with my wife and who was making coffees all afternoon and early evening and just just not being able to say anything just because we knew what was on the line. Uh, Bahrain had escalated everything. 
that was the moment. The greatest, after the shackles, the greatest pressure was on. You know, we knew that the social media was trending to an extraordinary degree. We'd created this storm, and storms are difficult to maintain. And I was very conscious that if it didn't happen then, um, we didn't know where it was going to land. And so when it happened, I was, I was just speechless. Yeah, really. Uh, people were calling and texting. And I got the first text from Thailand from a journalist that I met throughout and said, I think this is happening. And I couldn't tell him. But I said, what do you mean? What are you hearing? He said, well, apparently something, you know, he's been removed from prison. And, you know, we just we just sat in, and, and, and just all the energy and all of the tension just left. And we just, everyone just collapsed. Everyone who was involved in it. And it took some time after that to um, kind of just get any energy back. Well, I think we packed six months of energy into, yeah, I was probably involved about, I would imagine, at, a, at, a, at an intense level, probably 60 days. So it was probably six months or a year in, in two months. Oh, fantastic. That's what it's all about. And what about you yourself, Foz? You're 51. I mean, what, what's next for you? I think you had a crack at becoming chairman of the FFA. There's been other positions there uh, over the years, up for grabs, coaching, politics, law. Mm-hmm. What's it going to be? Yeah, no, you know what? It's, a, it's actually a really tough question at the moment. The, 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 the true answer is I, I just don't quite know, um, because I've you know I've got this um, advocacy background in sport, um, you know, the masters in sport, um, you know, the law degree, you know, I've, I, I enjoy the campaigning. I, I feel strongly about supporting social issues, um, but I also know that making real and lasting change absolutely requires getting involved in some way in the political, if not political discussion and discourse or even in the mechanisms in some way. Um, I'm, I'm an adjunct professor for Torrance University at the moment, which I'm enjoying, and I'm putting some courses together around these themes, around human rights and, and athletes using their platforms for social justice. So I'm enjoying that. Um, in, in the end, I just want to see a better, fairer world after COVID. Well, Craig Foster, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. I mean, you were an international sporting star whose passion for the game of football is unrivaled, but the fact you became one of Australia's most respected broadcasters and your conviction and relentless drive on the human rights fronts only served to enhance your legacy, no doubt about that. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to the best of This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll catch you next week with the colourful former jockey, the pumper. Jimmy Cassidy. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.